This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Sometimes when I look over at Mr. McMillan and he turns the mic hot, I'm raring to go. And today, in fact, is one such day. But to a degree that's almost unprecedented, yours truly is not sure exactly where to go. The reason for this is that I am overwhelmed with things to talk about. As mentioned on last week's program, yours truly was in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, at the Cyril Wecht Institute for Forensic Science and Law for their annual conference titled Passing the Torch. In this case, it was an, in this case, an international symposium on the 50th anniversary of the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. There were a lot of speakers over a three-day period and a lot of fascinating information. And how it is I can share the experience of three days' worth of conference in about 30 or 40 minutes' worth of radio is, well, I'd have to say, impossible. So we will start the show as we like to do and then try to do the impossible for the rest of it. Before we attempt that leap into the chasm, we will start this program as we like to do with On This Date in History. Our day today being the 24th of October. It was on October 24th in 1836 that the American inventor Alonzo Phillips won a U.S. patent for safety matches. Their friction-ignited heads were made of sulfur, phosphorus, chalk, and glue. October 24th in 1882, the German physician Robert Koch discovered the cause of tuberculosis, which maybe not surprisingly turned out to be the tubercle bacillus. Actually, not to make fun of it, it was a great achievement in medicine. And on October 24th in 1946, I've always been rather tickled by this one, even though, despite its grim nature, Vidkun Quisling, the Norwegian army officer and would-be Nazi ruler of Norway, was executed for treason in Oslo after the war. His surname has become a synonym for a traitor. The part I always thought was curious was that Norway had repealed the death penalty before World War II, but they disliked Quisling so much they decided to bring it back just for him. And finally, on October 24th in 1970, Salvador Allende, an avowed Marxist, got elected president of Chile. That was against determined United States opposition. U.S. efforts to destabilize the government bore fruit in 1973 with a coup by the Chilean military, which overthrew Allende and assassinated him. Although I do remember so well the National Lampoon report on this back in 1973, where they claimed that, according to the CIA, Allende had committed suicide shooting himself in the back with an automatic weapon, pausing only once to reload. And it should be noted as no laughing matter that that wasn't the only assassination that took place down in Chile at that same time. Our own government's Central Intelligence Agency decided that Colonel René Schneider, head of the Chilean Armed Forces, uh, was kind of a wuss for respecting the democratic process and not being on board to promptly overthrow Allende. For that, he himself was assassinated. Should pause a moment to note a couple things. Not only is the topic of people getting assassinated a bit of a grim one we're just going to have to deal with, but that as today's program uh, unfolds, the names CIA and Central Intelligence Agency are just going to pop up. They're just going to. This correspondent is aware of the fact that there are some awfully good people working for the Central Intelligence Agency. Every nation needs to have intelligence. We're no exception. 
And without a doubt, some bright people working for the agency have turned up some useful data, such as during the ramp up to the war in Iraq, the lower level CIA people that leaked to the press that there was nothing to this weapons of mass destruction stuff. This was all being wildly exaggerated. Of course, the higher end of the CIA, people like George Tenet were instrumental in helping get that bunch of BS out before the public. And I'm sad to note that that's also going to be a recurring theme as we unfold today's show. Our quote of the day comes from Adlai Stevenson, who once said it's often easier to fight for a principle than live up to it. And our quip of the day, which is, I think, appropriate, having attended a conference where people there have sometimes gone from one opinion to another, which is as they should do. Quote from John Maynard Keynes, who famously once said, when the facts change, I change my mind. What do you do, sir? Our joke of the day comes from John F. Kennedy, who delivered a pretty good line back in 1958 at the Gridiron Club, two years before he would actually win the presidency. Then Senator Kennedy went up to um, deal with the consensus opinion in Washington. He was probably both a pawn and proxy for his powerful and rather unscrupulous father, Joe. Kennedy deflated that by pulling out a piece of paper from his pocket to read a telegram that he said had been sent by his father regarding the upcoming 1960 presidential election. Said Joe Kennedy, supposedly, Jack, don't spend one dime more than's necessary. I'll be damned if I'm going to pay for a landslide. Our anecdote of the day comes from something that happened to me at the WECT conference at Duquesne. Jim DiEugenio and I were talking to the widow of Gayton Fonzie, a very well-respected investigator for the House Select Committee back in the 1970s. Mrs. Fonzie was talking about how um, she couldn't understand why it was that Gayton put up with Bill O'Reilly. Back then, Bill O'Reilly was convinced that there had been a conspiracy in the case, unlike what he says today. Mrs. Fonzie said, you know, uh, Gayton gave Bill his first job. Which Jim and I said, Really? She said, yeah, it was for a local magazine down there in Miami. He hired Bill for $25 a month, which caused her to pause and sort of reflect on the fact that, geez, Bill went from $25 a month to like, what, $6 million a year, which caused me to remark, he was overpaid then, which did get a chuckle out of Mrs. Fonzie. All right, our stat of the day, and in this we're going to adhere to our JFK theme which is that, as reported by USA Today several months ago, more people believe that Oswald acted alone now than at any time since a few years after the assassination. But this can't be very reassuring for supporters of the uh, official view because the number of people that thought Oswald did it alone was 24%. Back in 1966, it was 36%, and it's never been as high as 24% since. If you're keeping score, 59% of Americans, according to this poll six months ago, think that there was a conspiracy to kill the 35th president. And I would like to add at this point in the program, they are correct. To which I would immediately graph on the fact that the opinion that John F. Kennedy was killed by a conspiracy is an opinion that does not necessarily represent that of KDVS, our sponsors, or the University of California. But if I do my job right, by the time this hour is over, that 59% will include you. All right, and you know, one thing we can't admit from the program is the good, the bad, and the ugly. Let's do a little of that. Of 
According to the Week magazine, it was a good week last week for family trees. After Austrian scientists used DNA analysis to prove that 19 men currently living in the country's Tyrol region are related to Otzi, the Iceman, whose 5,300-year-old body was found frozen in the Alps back in 1991. But it was a bad week last week, apparently, for Googling. After Massachusetts police seized a computer belonging to suspected bank robber Sarah McLeod and allegedly discovered it had been used for web searches that included what happens if you rob a bank and also if you're going to rob a bank, dot, dot, dot. And finally, it was an ugly week last week for, I don't know, take your pick, childhood, the Postal Service, our insane legal system. Here's the item. The U.S. Postal Service halted the production on its exercised-themed stamps over complaints that some of the illustrations depicted children who were not wearing protective gear. The offending Let's Move stamps showed children skateboarding without knee pads, cannonballing into the water, and doing headstands without a helmet. Headstands without a helmet? Why, it's inconceivable. Now, who it is that thinks you're going to get protection by cannonballing into the water wearing a helmet? Well, we, we don't know. All right, here's an item we're tempted to label with only in Azerbaijan, except that it isn't really only in Azerbaijan. In fact, this reminds us all too uncomfortably of the U.S. elections in 2000 and 2004, but here's the story. The authoritarian regime in Azerbaijan accidentally announced last week the re-election of President Ilham Aliyev a day before the polls opened. Yes, apparently the Central Election Commission's smartphone app showed Aliyev winning a third term with 73% of the vote, with just 7.4% going for opposition candidate Jamil Hassanli. The CEC quickly retracted the, quote, results, unquote, saying it had mistakenly republished the last election returns. But it's been noted by international observers since Haslani didn't run in 2008, that seemed rather implausible. The country, ruled by either Aliyev or his father since 1993, have never held an election that Western observers deemed free and fair. And now we have no information on whether they were using Diebold machines to count the votes. Of course, Azerbaijan used to be part of the USSR, and uh, Joseph Stalin, dictator of Soviet of the Soviet Union, once did say, did once say, those who vote decide nothing. Those who count the vote decide everything. Boy, and speaking of elections, and I guess Republicans, some years back, uh, the GOP had Joe the Plumber as part of their uh, folklore. Radio Parallax doesn't have Joe, but we do have Evo the Plumber. We expect to bring him back to talk about how bathroom wipes are clogging up America's sewers. To quote briefly from a piece by Carolyn Thompson that was in The Bee, Increasingly popular bathroom wipes, pre-moistened towelettes that are often advertised as flushable, are being blamed for creating clogs and backups in sewer systems around the nation. Wastewater authorities say wipes may go down the toilet, but even many labeled flushable aren't breaking down as they course through the sewage system. We put a call into Evo to ask him... um, about that, and he said, yes, it's true. Hoping the weeks to come, he'll come and explain more about uh, America's impending sewage crisis. Let's do one or two non-assassination items. Flying back east to Pittsburgh last Wednesday, I thought of the article in the B, which I was reading on the plane, 
noting that airlines are wringing more inches out of their seating. And I think I can attest to that. Yes, Peace in the Bee by Joshua Freed noted that um, the big U.S. airlines are taking out old bulky seats in favor of so-called slimline models that take up less space front to back, allowing five or six more seats on each plane. And uh, they made the aisles just a bit thinner, too. Article noted that uh, you can expect more bumps from the beverage carts from now on. And doggone it, that too I can attest to. What frightens Mr. McMillan about this is that we're in the middle of an obesity epidemic. People are getting larger and our seats are getting smaller. And of course, uh, when you do want to fly somewhere, one place you may be flying less in the future might be China. Interesting piece in the business section last week about how tourism is in a state of decline in smog-clouded China. They showed this ghastly picture of gray skies over Tiananmen Square. To which I would add, yep, we are telling you about that last November. If you're going to go to China, you may need to take a gas mask. And apparently over in Europe, there's a big to-do about um, the Roma people and possibly uh, they're possibly kidnapping children. It's widely believed that the Roma, better known to you perhaps as gypsies, have long had a habit of stealing children. That is, that is the stereotype. And sadly, on all counts, it appears that uh, some children that are now turning up over in Europe appear to have had exactly that happened to them. They did not look like the people that they were in the custody of, and genetic tests showed that um, the people that claimed to be their mother and father were not. All right, we're going to need to go to a break in a couple of minutes. But as we do, I just want to say that um, although I did suggest we might be able to get Oliver Stone for today's program, I'm sorry to report that Mr. Stone was hands down the most popular speaker at the conference, and um, uh, getting even a five-minute interview out of him was simply not possible. I, I did have a chat after the conference with its excellent program administrator, Ben Wecht, who is Dr. Cyril Wecht's highly capable son, about whether he thought it might be possible to get Stone in the future, to which he replied, he's awfully well protected. But he would further us with some appropriate people we may contact, and, and we're going to give it a go. We did have better luck with Mark Lane, who did assure me that uh, he would be willing to come on this program in the future. We will attempt to do the legwork uh, necessary to make that happen. Also, Len Osanik, who produces Black Op Radio. There's another person I expect we will bring on to talk uh, to you, dear listener, about the good work he does in bringing some people who have interesting things to say before the public. Len Osanik and Black Ops Radio have had quite a few guests in common with what we've done right here on Radio Parallax, which allows me to segue into talking about um, the first special event they had on Thursday night. After that, we'll take a break and talk more about the conference. But I just want to note in closing that um, it was a good feeling to go to uh, the first evening's special event, which reflected upon journalism and how it relates to looking at what happened to President Kennedy. On the dais that night were Jefferson Morley, author of Our Man in Mexico, Winston Scott and the Hidden History of the CIA, and a former investigative reporter for the Washington Post. We've had Mr. Morley on this program. I told him, by the way, he was long overdue to come back. He agreed enthusiastically that was so. We will be getting Jefferson Morley back on this program. Joining him also in the dais was Russ Baker, author of Family of Secrets, The Bush Dynasty, America's Invisible Government, and The Secret History of the Last 50 Years. Russ is also the founder of WhoWhatWhy.com. We've had him on, I don't know, three times, Mr. McMillan, and I expect that Russ will be back. Joining Morley and Baker was David Talbot, author of the bestseller Brothers, A Hidden History of the Kennedy Years. He's the former CEO and founder and editor-in-chief of Salon.com. We've had David on twice, and you can bet he's going to be back. 
Joining that trio was Jerry Polikoff, writer and blogger whose work's been published in the New York Times and the Village Voice, and goes back to the 1960s as one of the first people that saw there were problems both with the case and how it was being reported. And finally, there was Lisa Pease. We've had on, I don't know how many times, seven, eight, I don't know. Lisa is, uh, is one of our favorites. She's an information activist, according to the, uh, the brochure, and also co-author and co-editor of The Assassinations. She and Jim DiEugenio produced Probe magazine for many years. The only person of the six in the dais we have not had on this program was Oliver Stone. I hope in the next uh, two or three months we will uh, correct that deficiency. And uh, before we go to break, I just want to note that one thing I've been anticipating for a while is that they're going to assassinate John F. Kennedy all over again between now and the anniversary of his death. Over the decades, a cottage industry has grown up spreading uh, scurrilous information about John Kennedy. It's always struck me as a little odd that the sources for that always seem to trace back to the Central Intelligence Agency. On the way back on the plane, I was reading Evan Thomas's book, The Very Best Men, subtitled The Daring Early Years of the CIA. The book goes into the curious lives of four powerful people in the early days of the CIA, Desmond Fitzgerald, Frank Wisner, Richard Bissell, and Tracy Barnes. We have had Evan Thomas on this program in the past. I'm proud to say he is a hell of a writer. But I was rather struck in reading page 257 of this book, which was talking about the Bay of Pigs invasion, when I stumbled upon this paragraph. John F. Kennedy was also feeling gloomy that weekend. He'd gone out to Glen Ora, the weekend place his wife favored in the Virginia hunt country. The First Lady rode. The president was bored. He spent the early afternoon driving golf balls into cow pastures. He was also physically uncomfortable. His chronic venereal disease had flared up again. A specialist would give him a shot of penicillin the next morning. Now, as a physician, when I read something like that, I go, holy cow. And that got me checking out the footnotes to the chapter, which cited the venereal disease story as coming from Nigel Hamilton's JFK, Reckless Youth. I am a little surprised that the CIA people that have been so helpful to many of these authors didn't also include the fact that during that weekend in question, JFK had stopped beating Jackie. Anyway, let's take a short break. As we do so, I want to quote our pal Don Rose, who is noted as part of the comedy act he used to do down in Southern California. And he once posed the question, what if JFK had not gone into politics? What if, instead, he'd become a stand-up comedian? Don would then launch into, Man walks into a bar. He loses his wallet there. And at that point, quits while he's ahead, which is what you ought to do in comedy. Anyway, let's take a short break. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax. we got lots to talk about. Music. 